Hello and welcome back to Complexity Unpacked with Professor G. This is our second episode in the Forensic Psychology series, and today we'll be talking about law enforcement psychology. So as a quick refresher, forensic psychology, as we discussed last week, is a field of psychology that deals with all aspects of human behavior as it relates to the law or legal systems. This necessarily must include those employed by the justice system and interacting with it. So the list could include a range of fields that directly or indirectly relate uh, to the administration of justice. So in this episode, we will specifically look at uh, frontline law enforcement officers as they are often the earliest point of contact with the justice system. So let's be realistic. Law enforcement is complex, it's demanding, stressful, and potentially dangerous. It requires uh, a level of intelligence and creativity, patience, uh, ethical behavior, hardworking individuals that are dedicated to the job at hand. Now the job may not be for everyone and therefore it is important for all those involved to ensure that the individuals who are um, accepted to the job have the highest potential for success. It requires the use of valid selection procedures that allow law enforcement agencies to effectively screen out applicants who possess undesirable characteristics, uh, things that would make them, um, you know, candidates that may run into problems down the road. Or they need to make sure that they're selecting applicants who at least possess desirable characteristics that can be developed in time. Now, these characteristics may relate to a variety of personal features, including, you know, an applicant's physical fitness, their cognitive abilities, their personality, and performance on various job-related tasks. Today's lesson will talk a little bit about how psychology has been used uh, within law enforcement, the selection process, and why it plays an integral role in the formation of a modern police service. So if you look at the history of police selection, psychologists have been involved in police selection since the early 20th century. In, notably, in 1917, Lewis Terman used the Stanford Binet intelligence test to assist with police selection in uh, California, which led him to recommend a minimum IQ score of 80 for future applicants. Now, Lewis Terman was the first American psychologist to use mental tests as screening devices in the selection of law enforcement personnel. In fact, the truth is, though, he found that most of the applicants at that time functioned uh, in the lower range of normal in terms of intelligence. And very, very few obtained the IQ that was considered average uh, at the time for the general population. So based on his experience with intellectual capabilities of school-aged children, Terman suggested somewhat arbitrarily that applicants with an IQ under 80 were not fit for police work or firefighting. A contemporary of Terman, psychologist uh, Lewis Thurston, was also interested in the value of intellectual testing in police screening. Thurston, in 1922, administered the newly developed Army Intelligence Examination, uh, I think it was called Army Alpha, to about 358 male members of the Detroit Police Department. It was probably the first exclusively American test of intelligence uh, that was created. Now, police officers at all ranks, when they did this test, uh, scored below average 
on the Army Alpha test. In fact, the more experienced the police officer, the lower uh, his intelligence score turned out to be on the test, which is a really confusing fact when we think about the formation of police services. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about a very long time ago and things have evolved and changed because we have put a much greater focus and emphasis on uh, cognitive abilities today. But back then, the average score for a patrol officer was somewhere around 71.44, whereas sergeants averaged about 54.71, and conversely, 17 lieutenants who took the test um, averaged 57.8. So Thurston concluded uh, at that time that law enforcement did not attract uh, initially the most intelligent individuals, and those who were more intelligent uh, when they entered the police service, tended to leave for other occupations where the abilities and their intelligence were better utilized. Now, what is relevant here from our perspective is to consider how the use of psychological devices have helped us improve and shore up the ranks we have today. Today, we put a tremendous amount of uh, weight and emphasis on people's cognitive abilities, their education. What we're trying to achieve is a more informed and better educated police service because we understand the job is not purely physical. In the 1940s, police recruits in uh, Los Angeles, the LAPD, were tested using the Hum-Wadsworth uh, temperament scale, which was found to predict job success with a reasonably high level of accuracy. By the mid-1950s, psychological and psychiatric screening procedures of police applicants became pretty standard, uh, and it was a standard part of the selection procedure uh, and many police services, major police services, adopted it. By 1967, the U.S. President's uh, Commission on Law Enforcement and Administration of Justice recommended that uh, police services adopt a higher educational requirement, implying that intelligence was a core characteristic of successful officers. In 1973, the National Advisory Commission on Criminal Justice Standards recommended that police agencies establish formal selection criteria and those would include the use of tests to measure the cognitive abilities and personality features of applicants. Since that time, police selection has become more formalized, with more police services using a wide range of selection procedures. Police uh, selection research is not as common in Canada as it is in the United States, so that's probably the reason why I've shared with you so many American details to date. Yet many of the same selection procedures that were are used in both countries, so it's applicable. Most Canadian police agencies use a range of cognitive abilities and personality tests in their selection processes. Uh, there are some slight differences across provincial and territorial boundaries, but generally it's a fair, um, you know, it's fair to say that a in-depth cognitive and physical and personality-based assessment is done at every uh, Canadian police service. police selection process can be used either um, as a screening out tool or screening in approach to selecting new candidates. In order to do this, the police service must develop a valid selection process. And there are two separate stages to this process. So stage one is referred to as the job analysis stage. Here the agency must define the knowledge, skills and abilities of a good police officer. Then in stage two, um, it's referred to as the construction and validation stage. At this stage, the agency must develop an instrument for measuring the extent to which police applicants possess those knowledge, skills, and abilities we talked about. 
and a crucial part of the stage is to determine that the instruments are actually valid so are we asking for things that are actually required on the job are they bona fide workplace requirements in essence an, organiza an organizational psychologist working in conjunction with a police agency frequently is the one that would conduct those type of job analysis and now don't get me wrong there are many challenges when conducting any sort of job analysis in law enforcement uh, because the law enforcement context is complicated right so the, the knowledge, skills, and abilities of a good police officer may not be stable over time, making it difficult to determine whether the selection procedure should actually, you know, uh, be used long term or it should be updated and validated at frequent points. Society changes, and as society changes, the traits we consider vital to do this job well uh, also changes, right? So different types of police officers or different policing jobs will be characterized also by different knowledge, skills, and abilities. So a one-size-fits-all model very rarely works. For example, the knowledge, skills, and abilities that apply to a frontline police officer may not always translate well to a supervisory or management function. There's very, very different skill sets that those roles rely upon. However, there's a tradition in Canadian policing to promote up the ranks, which can you know, lead to downstream problems. So imagine you hire somebody who you believe makes uh, an excellent frontline officer, and then that same officer is later promoted. Unless active work and active effort is made to develop those skills, the person was actually brought on to do a different job than the one he or she is being promoted into. And this is where problems sort of occur. We tend not to bring people in at higher ranks. So they come in at the constable level and they move up the ranks and what we're looking for might be completely different, right, at later stages. So ongoing professional development becomes a key part. But, you know, psychologists are pretty good at determining the necessary personality and cognitive uh, baseline that is transferable to other places. So regardless of job type, there's some agreement, at least, across all police officers of varying ranks on what makes a good police officer. And that baseline allows us to develop some sort of criterion. The following um, you know, uh, knowledge, skills, and abilities are typically viewed as essential on the job. So honesty, reliability, sensitivity to others, being a good communicator, right? So having exemplary communication skills, being highly motivated and a self-starter, a problem-solving skill set, uh, being a team player, as a general rule of thumb, those are those are some good characteristics that we can see across the board, regardless of rank, where those are applicable. So the most common screening methods utilized by police services are some of the following, right? So the selection interview. In, in this, uh, recruiting police officers... Uh, strategy an interview is used by the police to determine the extent to which an applicant possesses the right uh, KSAs the knowledge skills and abilities we talked about earlier in the previous segment that are deemed important to do the job so that selection might move somebody along in the process assuming that a candidate or an applicant is successful there usually the next stage is psychological tests and psychological tests are commonly used by police agencies to measure cognitive abilities and a an applicant's personality. So when you break that into two different types of, uh, of psychological tests, the first one is cognitive ability tests, and that's procedures for measuring verbal, mathematics, memory, and reasoning abilities. 
When you look at a personality test, however, an assessment instrument for identifying people with uh, psychopathological problems. So psychopathology is the study of the disease or dysfunction of the mind. It usually results in psychological or behavioral dysfunction. Tests can be used to determine if a person suffers a mental health illness such as schizophrenia, homicidal or suicidal ideation, narcissistic personality disorder, socio uh, sociopathy. All of these are examples of things that you know might want to be screened out and the personality test provides that. The involved personality inventory was developed actually specifically for law enforcement uh, and the law enforcement community. It's an instrument used to identify police applicants who are suitable for police work by measuring the personality attributes and behavior patterns they exhibit. And then uh, invariably you have assessment centers where they do situational type testing. So that's a facility in which the behavior of police applicants can be observed uh, when they give them simulated circumstances um, you know, or a simulation of a real-world policing task to see how that they would uh, how they would respond. In Ontario, we think we tend to think of that as the BPAD, uh, and those are a behavioral assessment sort of um, tool. Now, why do we need to do this kind of screening and you know this uh, this much in terms of personality? One would argue that it's possible we could train all of this, and the argument goes that you know psychology plays a big role in the personality makeup of that future officer. We need to make sure that they have a good, stable set of underlying characteristics. And one of the primary reasons for that is the subject of police discretion. So just to define police discretion, the term represents the critical faculty that individual officers must possess that will allow them to differentiate and discriminate between uh, those circumstances that require absolute adherence to the letter of the law and those occasions when a degree of latitude is justified. So considering the spirit of the law would become essential in some cases, right? And that would be based on an officer's knowledge, his, uh, his or her experience or instinct. Now what is particularly relevant is that police officers have often been differentiated from the employees in a whole bunch of other organizations because the level of discretion generally in most jobs increases as you know it moves up the hierarchy that's where it comes so there's generally very low levels of discretion for entry-level workers in most job policing doesn't work that way the discretion granted to police officers is very high right out the gate and it needs to be this discretion is unavoidable for two reasons, right? So first, as police, uh, police agencies face escalating demands for, you know, with their limited resources, individual officers are constantly making decisions about the level and the scope of intervention. And then secondly, every incident that police officers respond to are often diverse and nuanced and they rely on judgment rather than merely a standard operating procedure. Now don't get me wrong, Standard operating procedures provide a good baseline for what you should do, but discretion is something that is required first day on the job or 30 years into the job. doesn't really matter, right? It's a critical function of being able to think on your feet effectively. And this bears out in the job analysis that were done by psychologists, right? So many of the qualities deemed necessary for success uh, as a police officer, when you think about it, Right? The applicant has to be adaptable, right? 
having common sense, possessing effective decision-making skills. Uh, I mentioned being a good problem solver. All of the job analysis shows that these are the qualities absolutely essential at every level of policing. Now, some people believe that police officers should always enforce the law, but police officers clearly do not do that, and I would argue perhaps they cannot, right? They can't enforce every law all of the time. It's, it's practically impossible. And for that reason, police officers are given a great deal of latitude in how they apply the law, right? And they utilize discretion to determine what is the best course of action in every given circumstance. So this is why that psychological ability, that cognitive ability, is really a key part of the policing and law enforcement role. It is impossible to establish laws and adi that adequately encompasses all the possible situations that officers encounter, right? So a degree of discretion is inevitable. Now, there are many other arguments for why police discussion is a necessary part of modern-day policing. Uh, to give you a few, legislators pass some laws that they clearly do not intend to have strictly enforced, right? It sends a social message, but nobody expects 100% enforcement. Legislators sometimes pass laws that are vague, making it necessary to utilize interpretation. Most laws um, and most law violations really that occur on a day-to-day -day basis are minor in nature. So do you give somebody a ticket every time they jaywalk, every time they do a kilometer over the speed limit? Uh, discussion is, is required because strict adherence to the law is practically impossible. So full enforcement from that perspective would probably also alienate the public and undermine support for the police. I mean, if you don't demonstrate a level of reasonableness, you're much more likely to find yourself without the support of the public. And believe it or not, the support of the public is a key part of being effective on this job. So full law enforcement of every law would overwhelm the justice system, the prison system, the court system. All of that would be would be tapped out. And that's because it's not just the police, but most units of our justice system have limited resources. So for this reason, good judgment must be used in establishing enforcement priorities. Right? For discretion to be effective, officers must be able to apply uh, discretion in a non-discriminatory manner. And there are relatively few decisions that a police officer has to make that does not require that discretion, right? Now, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms can be seen as a guideline to control police discretion, right? It enshrines some universal rights to all legal residents of Canada. And I would, most people would consider, not just me, it is a necessary moral constraint on the law, right? So that's an overarching piece of legislative requirement that means that law enforcement officers must act with a certain amount of restraint because we do value the rights and freedoms of Canadian citizens. Now, when it comes to youth crime, as the initial gatekeepers to the, the juvenile justice system, police officers have a great deal of discretion when dealing with young offenders. And many studies suggest that approximately 30% to 40% of youth crime is handled informally by the police or through referrals to community services. In Canada, Police officers are actively encouraged to use discretion when dealing with youth crime because this encouragement appears to be the result of a growing belief that formal sentences are probably not the most effective response to dealing with many young offenders, right? When you think about offenders with mental illness, police officers frequently come into contact with offenders with mental illness uh, for a numerous range of factors, right, that are outside of the scope of policing. But several factors that increase the likelihood of those encounters 
primary among them, you know, the recent movement towards deinstitutionalization, uh, institutionalization, right? So whenever we had uh, issues in the past, you know, we looked at institutions, but for the last about 40 years or so, we've realized that people could live fuller lives in the community. The question becomes, have we always provided the right types of support that have allowed them to integrate into the community, right? Now, where we have not, and people slip through the cracks, police officers do have to sometimes apprehend individuals who might pose a danger to themselves or to others, or they're causing some sort of disturbance. And while the root cause might be mental illness, in the moment, the officer is dealing with the situation at hand. So, police officers typically resolved encounters with offenders who had a mental illness in an informal fashion. Like, they understood that in 72% of the cases, that was the preferred route. Sometimes, um, with arrests and emergency hospitalizations uh, would be the solution. But that's actually far less frequent than many people think. Only about 16, you know, about 15, 16% of cases uh, really end with arrest or an emergency hospitalization. Most of them are handled informally, right? So the limited options that are often available to the police when they're dealing with people who are living with mental illness um, can mean that these offenders can easily become criminalized. The police officers have a range of, of options that they can follow. And if they follow them in a particular way, we quickly see the criminalization of mentally ill uh, individuals because their first encounter with help tends to be the police. One of the constant critiques, if you will, of deinstitutionalization in the absence of providing good community resources is that in some ways, in the past, perhaps an individual living with mental illness would have been treated by a mental health facility or system. And today, more often than not, their first encounter is with the criminal justice system as opposed to a mental health support system, right? You can look at the other case about discretion that is, you know, an old one, domestic violence. So historically, domestic violence uh, by a husband against his wife or by same-gender partners was often ignored by the police, right? This is going back a ways when we gave people a fair bit of latitude and privacy within their own homes. However, in the 1960s and 70s, people became more aware of, of sort of victims' needs in domestic violence situations. Legislative action in Canada attempted to ensure a strong criminal justice response to domestic violence. Arrest rates for domestic violence incidents ranged mm, between 12 and 40% of all cases of domestic violence. So not everybody who, uh, you know, the police respond to are ending up in an arrest. Sometimes they're mediating that, that uh, struggle. Other examples of responses include, uh, you know, mediation, sometimes community referrals. Um, sometimes people get separated and, you know, one person is asked to temporarily leave the home. Those sort of things are a case-by-case -case sort of assessment. Now, some studies indicate that separation um, is used as an intervention strategy almost as often as arrests are used, which suggests that more often than not, when the police are responding to a domestic violence situation, uh, assuming that there's no uh, evidence of serious uh, harm that, you know, if it's an argument that has escalated and there's a, a level of danger. So I'm talking about no evidence of physical harm already being committed. Usually one person's asked to leave and, uh, you know, so that cooler heads can prevail by morning. This obviously is an evolving sort of system that requires a great deal of discussion, right? 
You could also look at things like use of force situations. And that topic has received a ton of attention when it comes to police discretion. So police officers are granted the right to use force to protect the general public, to pretend, protect themselves, to limit somebody from either harming themselves or harming others. And in Canada, those authorities, that authority to use force is laid out in our criminal code. So police use the force, uh, you know, police use of force is relatively rare uh, in terms of everyday policing calls when you think about it, right? Now, of course, we hear about them a lot because they make the media uh, regularly. But the use of force is relatively rare phenomena in Canadian policing. Whether measured by, you know, use of force reports or citizen complaints, victim surveys, uh, we, we know that it's just, uh, they make up a small percentage of the actual police-public interactions, right? And the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, again, in this instance, can be seen as a guideline to control police discussion because it makes it clear that all people should be treated fairly and equally. In Canada, one section of the Police Services Act states that police officers commit misconduct if they fail to treat people um, or protect a person without discrimination, right? Without treating them with any level of discrimination. So we understand very quickly that there are limitations on discretion, but discretion is widely and inevitably used because it's the nature of the job. The theory behind the use of force continuum is that in order to subdue a suspect, the officer must be prepared to use a level of force that is at least one step higher uh, than that which they're encountering, right? So they're trying to stop resistance where it happens. But you imagine how much discretion is required when you're trying to figure out where someone will be in any of the circumstances, not just the use of force, in a domestic violence situation, in uh, you know a situation where you're dealing with somebody who's living with mental illness, if you're dealing with a young offender. All of those things require police officers to be able to think on the fly and be able to function fairly, fairly quickly in order to be able to you know, be effective. turn our attention a little bit to power and authority because these are these are psychological factors that interact with the function of law enforcement so law enforcement officers possess enormous amounts of power which can be used against citizens to deprive them of their freedom search them or their dwelling seize their property or even use force against them so it is important that law enforcement officers not misuse that power and uh, you know there are many reasons for that let's let's examine a few of them right so there's a psychology of citizenship that we should be aware of. Citizens, for the most part, want to participate in the social contract, right? That is to be a part of mainstream society and carry out their own citizenship responsibilities. They want to belong to a society and will do what they think is required by authorities to accomplish this. So as a result, they will often find uh, we will often find that they people generally try very hard to respond to what law enforcement requires. And they may uh, inevitably become susceptible to unreasonable requests by law enforcement, right? This is where we put the emphasis on law enforcement to act in an ethical manner uh, and to act in a way that, you know, preserves the process. So every law enforcement officer should acknowledge the importance of due process and that abusing power or the abuse of power generally, it runs directly uh, contrary to the notion of due process. And officers who misuse their power are creating an environment in which 
that process, that expectation, that reciprocal expectation between citizens and law enforcement, it can flourish. So power and authority are tools that law enforcement officers must use extremely judiciously and ethically. Without an ethical life, without an ethical way of handling law enforcement activities, the power can easily be misused, creating a power imbalance that is bad for the officer, the agency, and for society. Now, these are, there, these are some things that sort of all play in. We've talked a little bit about discretion. We've talked about how officers have a great deal of power and how they need to use that judiciously. The authority that's bestowed upon them has an impact on the day-to-day -day interactions that they you know, have. But it also causes a great deal of stress. Now, many police psychologists, as well as police officers, their families, uh, consider policing to be uh, a pretty stressful occupation. And even if it's not one of the uh, you know, actual most stressful occupations, we can all probably agree that police officers are exposed to a great deal of stressful events. So there are various sources of police stress. And different officers are likely to perceive different events uh, depending on their own background, their own personalities, their own expectations, their own law enforcement experience, how many years they have on the job, or the type of law enforcement work they perform. And depending on those jobs, they have, you know, uh, ideally access to good coping resources. Research has indicated that there is uh, significant evidence to suggest that low levels of self-confidence and low levels of optimism are generally associated with increased stress levels amongst police officers. So this is why attitude, mindset, uh, psychological health becomes really important on this job, right? So it's a field with a high level of cynicism. It's a high level of uh, authoritarianism. And there are a lot of A-type personality features that are common um, in within this field, right? So high levels of cynicism, authoritarianism, and type A personality features are also associated with increased stress. And that's an important one to remember. So it's both common on the job and a common cause of increased stress. Now, there are different ways that people feel stress. Organizational stress might be one of them, right? So a lack of career development. In most police agencies, there's little room for advancement, right? Regardless of performance of the job, there is a very, very defined process, and the vast majority of the jobs are in the constable ranks. Uh, some people perceive paperwork, or at least excessive paperwork, the need to duplicate everything and make sure that everything is written down perfectly in multiple copies, that is very transactional in nature, and people sometimes consider that to have uh, a level of you know, organizational stress that comes with it. Then you can look at occupational stressors, right? things like irregular work schedules. And we know in general, shift work is extremely disruptive to personal lives. But in the case of officers, you've got all the other factors and the, the burdens of shift work, if you will. The, the missing family functions and fam family events, the, the working when everyone else is sleeping and not having regular days off, unlike everyone else, right? That does not work shift work anyways. Uh, officers are constantly exposed while on the job to the inequities and brutalities of life. So in those circumstances, those can be occupational stresses that can sort of weigh uh, in an officer's mental health. You, then you can have criminal justice stressors, right? So uh, ineffectiveness perhaps perceived within the correction system. So maybe 
uh, officers are frustrated by the recidivism rate of criminals. It might feel like no matter what they do, crimes keep happening, and crimes do, right? It, it, they might feel that no matter how many times they lock somebody up, somebody comes out and they commit another crime. So unfavorable court decisions might be taken almost personally, and that would be a risk to perception, right? Because there are many things that are outside of the control of the individual officer. So many court decisions are viewed by officers as unfairly increasing police work. And those things from a police perspective can cause stress as well, right? Now, there are public stressors, right? Things that are influenced by media or people's perceptions. Reports of incidents are often inaccurate, uh, you know, when they when they put in um, when they put in that perspective. So any distorted press accounts uh, perceived as derogatory by officers, whether or not uh, you know the accuracy is intentional or not is a problem because there's this feeling generally that can have an impact that the public might not support police officers generally speaking ineffectiveness of referral agencies so you know they ask to send people and pat people because law enforcement has a particular job and other people need to do theirs and the effectiveness of social service agencies can frustrate officers right who sort of are should be viewing them as part of a system that helps uh, so those are public stresses that can influence. Now, beyond that, though, there are some things that you should be aware of. So there are consequences to police stress. And when a police officer experiences or law enforcement officer experiences potentially life-threatening situations, the acute stress reactions that that officer can experience can have serious repercussions that, lost, that last long after the actual event. And constant exposure to other police stressors, particularly organizational stressors, can affect police officers in more chronic, you know, in more chronic ways. So the general consequence of police stress have been categorized into physical health problems, psychological and personal problems, and job performance problems. And one of the major consequences, uh, you know, obviously of police stress is the impact it can have on their physical health, right? So when we talk about physical health problems, research has shown that police officers are more than twice as likely as people in the general uh, population and other occupations to develop cardiovascular disease. When you look at psychological um, and personal problems, including depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, drug and alcohol abuse, uh, substance abuse basically, marital problems, uh, suicide and suicidal ideation, all of these can emerge from police officers being exposed to stressful situations. And then the third major category of stress consequence is usually job performance uh, related, right? So often as a direct result of physical and psychological problems, the way a police officer performs on the job uh, can suffer greatly. And this in some ways almost acts as a multiplier, right? So one potential method for preventing and managing stress at the level of the individual officer is to teach officers how to use adaptive coping strategies, right? And adaptive coping strategies and skills allow people to deal more effectively with stressful situations. This may be particularly useful because although police officers often cannot control the sources of job-related stress, the effective use of coping strategies uh, you know, following unpleasant events is actually controllable. So to shift gears a little bit, you know, my, the point that we're trying to make here is that psychology, whether it be the analysis of personal health, the, the way in which we can use psychology to understand other circumstances, 
the point is that psychology plays a very big role within law enforcement. You can think of things on a slightly different level. Another psychological application within law enforcement, you could think of SEPTED. So that's crime prevention through environmental design. I mean, it's inherently psychological when you think about it, right? So SEPTED is a multidisciplinary approach to crime prevention that uses urban and architectural designs and the management of those spaces and that built-in natural environment to affect an outcome. SEPTED strategies aim to reduce victimization, deter offenders, uh, decisions that precede criminal acts by building a sense of community amongst inhabitants so that they can, you know, uh, have some sort of territorial control of areas, reduce crime, and minimize fears of crime. Most of this is accomplished by utilizing psychological strategies to promote intended space for usage by certain people, right? While dissuading what a psychologist would call an abnormal user um, without using hard tactics by law enforcement. So you see, psychology has a way of playing out in many different things uh, law enforcement related. And these are really, you know, key to understanding the dynamic. So a worthwhile way to end this episode, if you will, is to understand what we were talking about all along. And the whole primary focus has been really an examination of police culture. It's about looking at all of the variables that psychologically may influence uh, police from the beginning, right? So right from selection all the way through being on the job to coping with the challenge of the job. Police culture has a big psychological and sociological component that is worth being cognizant of as you enter this field, right? And we will get into, in following episodes, we will get into the nitty-gritty of forensic psych more specifically. But you need that basis of psychology to understand where we're going with all of this. So let, let's end on a quick chat about police culture. And, you know, let's keep in mind that many factors that affect recruits' mindset, including their ethnicity, um, their culture, their past experiences, the media, and their future understanding of the role is influenced by the culture they're surrounded by, right? So social identity theories are concerned with this relationship between the individual, the self, uh, and the group. So an individual's social identity is the knowledge of his membership of a social group or groups. And together with that, um, you know, they assign a certain value and emotional significance to membership. So you consider how a role within a law enforcement agency Consider how that influences someone's identity. The task of getting in, of being trained and becoming sort of all part of the same, you know, uh, club or culture, if you will. Then being assigned the uniform, being part of a brotherhood or sisterhood, depending on, you know, your, um, your, your view, is a key part of understanding police identity. And humans have a natural tendency to evaluate their opinions, their success, their abilities, um, you know, as through a comparison with others. So this is not done only with those individuals and groups who are perceived to be similar, but also those who are perceived to be different. So you start to get that formation of the us versus them mindset a little bit, right? This idea that we are a collective that no one else understands 
and everybody else just doesn't get it. The purpose of this differentiation is not only to sustain the group itself, but also on a more individual level to contribute to, to enhance the self-image of the group and the culture you are a part of. And we get very invested in, in these ideas, and that can have an influence on the way we see psychologically the interactions we have, right? Now, there's a, there's a great case study out of uh, the United Kingdom that I had read not very long ago, and it was talking about uh, policing psychology uh, within criminal justice type programs. So that's the kind of students that are, on average, going to be the ones listening to this podcast, right? The, the students in justice-based programs. And it's argued that, to a certain extent, police occupational culture can have potentially a negative influence on service delivery and reform, right? Because enhanced training has been consistently highlighted across every continent at all times as a way to reduce um, problems that are caused within the occupational culture, but also to improve uh, professionalism within the law enforcement field. So this study I was referring to in the UK was, was fascinating because they were looking at their equivalent of police foundation students, if you will. Um, and several themes emerged from the study, which, which should give us pause. The most striking was the speed with which the students identified with the police culture, right? So it was seen, which was seen to occur within the first week of university, and sometimes even before through the application process, students appeared to become more defensive, isolated, and socially closed off as a group, right? They almost were mirroring the jobs they wanted to go into. Uh, although starting with uh, an overwhelming desire to help the public, most of the attitudes of students became more negative as their studies went on, right? Uh, a, a small number of students appeared confident in challenging those negative attitudes, but the vast majority sort of just accepted the, the existing narratives that policing have long lived by. It's almost like a process of indoctrination early on, if you think about it, right? So uh, another reason why that critical eye is really, really important. And if you're trying to understand this whole idea of adopting the culture, what was really interesting was that many of the student participants viewed their teachers, their lecturers' credibility based not on their academic achievements, but more so from their stories and the police service and the rank that they held previously. So it goes to show a certain amount of psychological bias, even at the college level, at the university level, right? Uh, because it shows you that the culture begins actually long before um, you even enter the job, right? However, the study does challenge the suggestion that just because prospective police officers make themselves, uh, you know, avail themselves of higher education, that the wider benefits of an education are not automatically, you know, uh, a consequence. Now, I'm not suggesting you shouldn't go to school, but I'm saying it's really important to recognize how strong a cultural influence policing has and how much that shapes both your self-identity and your social identity, right? Um, education should provide you with a multidisciplinary perspective, right? It should highlight to you you know, aspects of criminology and psychology and sociology and ethics. And, and the whole point is to increase empathy and understanding, right? Because there are ramifications of organizational culture that if not properly identified and not tackled in an explicit way can leave you ill-equipped 
to manage the psychological and physiological stressors of this job you want to go into, right? So I end uh, this this episode on on a on a note that says, you know, keep a critical eye and pay attention to the circumstances because the culture of law enforcement has in itself the possibility. It contains within it the possibility to influence you psychologically in ways you might not have considered. And if nothing else, consider the caution that, you know, we give everybody, which at the end of the day is this. Everybody says, that wouldn't happen to me, right? I wouldn't think like that. But group think. And going along to get along is not that uncommon. Tune in next uh, to the next episode when we break down some of the more specifics as they relate to police investigations and interrogations. So that's it for this episode. I'm Professor G, and this was an episode of Complexity Unpacked.